Welcome to the Smarter Healthcare Podcast, where we meet the brightest minds transforming healthcare with your host, Kathy Susich. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Smarter Healthcare Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us for our very first episode. My goal in creating the Smarter Healthcare Podcast is to share with you the stories of those people in healthcare who are on the front lines of innovation and transformation. My hope is to inspire you with the promise of what's on the horizon in the healthcare industry and to also learn what practical steps we can take today. It will be a fun and hopefully informative journey. I'm so happy you're taking it with me. Let me share with you a bit about myself at the outset. I started my career more than 20 years ago in TV broadcasting before moving into public relations, marketing, and writing. For the past seven years, I've been working in healthcare technology for Dimensional Insight, an analytics company in the Boston area. Three years ago, I decided to go back to school to get my MBA in health sector management at Boston University. I'm not quite done with my degree yet, but I do see the light at the end of the tunnel. I have a husband, three daughters, and a year-old puppy at home, so my life is very full, but also very rich. My first guest on the show seems to have an even busier life than I do. Dr. Christy Rienzo is a physician, author, husband, dad, and triathlete. Chris is author of the book Tiny Medicine, in which he talks about the lessons he learned as a neonatologist. In addition to talking about some of the lessons from the book, Chris and I discuss how empathy is still critical in healthcare and how he's a believer in the promise of new technologies to enhance provider empathy rather than detract from it. We had a great conversation and I'm proud to share it here with you. Here's my discussion with Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi, Kathy. Welcome to episode one of the Smarter Healthcare podcast. Any pressure. <laughs> I'm really excited to be here, and uh, I can't believe you chose me as your first guest. Well, thank you very much. I um, I read your book, Tiny Medicine. Awesome. And I have to say, on the second page, um, you had me choked up a little bit. <laughs> you were you were describing, um, you know, being with a very premature infant, and that process of you know realizing that the child wasn't going to make it. Mm-hmm. And, um, being with the parents, and I, it must be a very emotional type of job to work in the NICU. No doubt. I, I think anywhere that you practice in healthcare, as a physician, as a nurse, uh, as a member of a broad support team, you're drawn to healthcare for that sort of human to human connection. Uh, my wife is an oncology nurse, and so she's drawn to a different kind of connection with you know, older folks who have these long life stories. You know, for me, it was just um, engaging with babies and their parents in the NICU is, is incredibly rewarding, incredibly challenging, as you noted, in uh, in that particular kind of instance. But um, to me, there's there's just nothing else quite like it. Another part of the book that I really enjoyed was just seeing your progression as a provider. You know, you kind of started out, seemed like you didn't quite know where you wanted to be, <laughs> and then you found your place in medicine. Um, yeah. Which I thought was, it was nice to see that because you often think of your providers as knowing that they want to be in this one area, but I was reading through that and I was like, oh, this is like a nice human story. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that finding your place? That's exactly right. Uh, part of my goal in, in writing the book, I had all these stories that I just really wanted to tell. And I, I don't feel like um, 
folks who live outside of the clinical world of medicine get to see us as clinicians as humans. We're, we're taught to wear this professional veneer the majority of the time, uh, in part because it, it helps uh, engage in, in some incredibly challenging conversations, but also in part it's just it's a profession, right? And so I, I thought it would be interesting to tell some of the stories that show you know, behind that white coat are, are just people. Mm-hmm. And for me, uh, it was less about not knowing where my way was going to be in medicine and more uh, what I thought it was going to be changed like five different times. So when I started med school, I thought I was going to be an adult cardiologist. Uh, I, I just I loved the heart. I thought it was going to be really cool. I got into medical school. I did my first uh, rotation in internal medicine, and I said, I, I just can't do it. I, I can't do um, you know, the, the kind of, of, of clinical practice that would have been required. Uh, I remember being on service, and, uh, and I said, I, I just need to engage with kids. Uh, and then I started in pediatrics, and within the universe of pediatrics, um, you, you go into the NICU, and it, it's like your job to protect these kids. You know, every baby who's born uh, in the NICU, um, the, the whole team's focus Right is is try to get this kiddo uh, as big as he or she needs to be uh, to get home healthy and safe, mm-hmm. and so I was just thoroughly drawn to uh, the both the need to care for for these tiny babies as a team, uh, and and the book talks through some of the the stories in the NICU that that sort of showed that to me, and so for me I'd, I've never felt um, more engaged in a team dedicated to a core purpose. Than when working clinically in the in a NICU, it's it's a really special place. Mm-hmm. And I think that for for parents who have their kids in the NICU, um, I mean, I know that a while ago I spoke to another healthcare provider. She and I were talking about technology, mm. and she was talking about the the readmissions um, in their newborn unit. Mm. And she said to me, she's like, you know, for us, it's this number. Mm. But for a family, you know, to have to come back to the hospital, yeah. it's a life-changing event. And so, and the NICU is, it's a life-changing event for these families. Absolutely. If you look at the history of, of NICU quality improvement, it goes back almost 40 years to the Vermont Oxford Network. And I think one of the, um, one of the things that has made that movement so exceptionally successful in neonatal intensive care is it is almost impossible to only focus on a number mm-hmm. because as a practicing clinician, if you're a nurse practitioner, if you're a PA, if you're a doc, if you're an RT, if you're a nurse, whatever, you can see the kid in your head who had sepsis, surgical NEC, retinopathy, you name it. You can see that kid. And so when you're trying to drive an improvement effort around eliminating necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a big, long word, but you see the kid who had it, and you say, oh my gosh, we have to prevent that because you're right. It fundamentally deflects a trajectory in a person's life and their entire family's life in a way that, that wouldn't it be great if we could prevent. Mm-hmm. Now, another part of the book that I really enjoyed was when you talked about standing tall on the quarter deck. 
can you tell us a little bit about what that means and why it's so important for all of us in healthcare? To Absolutely. Stand uh, so that that quote came from a, a terrific mentor of mine, a man named uh, Dr. Ron Goldberg. He was the medical director, division chief, and the fellowship director at Duke when I did my fellowship there. And uh, when I started fellowship in the NICU at Duke, uh, at least at the time, I'm not sure if it's the same today, uh, the attendings went home at night. And so as a first year fellow right out the gate after a couple of sort of monitoring shifts, right, you were the senior most physician uh, responsible for 67 acutely ill level four intensive care nursery babies. And that is an enormous weight uh, and a level of chaos uh, that was falling on my shoulders as the leader of that team that I had never uh, had to bear before. And it was really clear in the first six months that um, that it was too much, that I, I I wasn't yet ready to step up in the way that unit needed me to lead. I, I had to learn uh, how to do that. And uh, so Dr. Goldberg pulled me aside uh, about a week after one particularly challenging shift. Uh, and he asked me, Chris, have you ever seen this movie, Master and Commander? And I, I said, Dr. Goldberg, I have no idea what you're talking about. And, and so he said, uh, in in the midst of the book, which or the the movie, which is about the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the captain of this British ship is taking bombardments left and right from his French enemy, uh, and you know there are cannonballs flying everywhere, and there are holes in the side of the ship, and all these kinds of things. You know, chaos is reigning. Uh, and things settle down for a moment. The captain rounds the bend, and he's coming down uh, the starboard side of the ship, and he sees this young officer still huddled behind a rampart. Uh, and so he grabs him by the collar uh, of his, his dress coat, lifts him in the air, and says, Son, we stand tall on the quarter deck, all of us. And at that point, Ron looked at me, and he said, Chris, you're the leader of this team. They're expecting you to stand up. And that doesn't mean you always have to know what to do. But it means that you need to stand tall, and you're not doing that. And that was absolutely a pivotal changing point for me in NICU fellowship and, and frankly, in, in my life. I had had leadership roles before. Um, I've been fortunate to get to serve in a number of leadership roles. But that mantle of, of ultimate life and death responsibility for that many babies and uh, the need to both lead and partner and coordinate um, was just a whole nother level. And so. From the time that, that Ron sat down with me, um, my experience in the NICU really started to change, and I, I got what that meant. And, uh, and it, it really, to my core, changed who I am as, as a leader and who I am as a person. And that seems like a good lesson for all of us to learn, even if we're not in the NICU, even if we don't have those life or death decisions every day. but. We all need to stand tall. We all need to take that leadership role, and we have to. Without question, Kathy. And I, I think the way that that applies to um, you know, folks listening to the podcast, people who work in healthcare, people who engage with healthcare, we live in an incredibly dynamic time uh, in the American health system. Uh, there's going to be a decade worth of transformational changes uh, that will make the last decade you know, pale in comparison. Uh, that's just reality. We, we're nearly 20% of GDP. Um, spend continues to rise. Uh, we're at a point where transformation is happening and further transformation is inevitable. And that means it can be scary to lead. Um, it, it's scary to look at a 
complex, uh, semi-chaotic problem um, like, like healthcare transformation can be uh, and, and not know exactly what to do next. And I think the, the lesson that I draw from, uh, from this part of the book is uh, when you're leading a team, their first expectation of you as a leader is not that you know exactly what to do next, but that you stand up and you take the responsibility of figuring out where do we go from here. Mm-hmm. And you also talk about doing a little bit better tomorrow. That's which, right. Which I really liked. And, you know, it's that you don't have to get from, know exactly how to get from here to there, but it's just that you have to do a little bit better tomorrow. That's exactly right. It, it's To me, it's it's very analogous to what what it's like uh, to have a 24-weeker born in the NICU. Right? When you're 500 grams at birth and you're born 16 weeks early, uh, it's a pretty long way down the field to imagine being 40 weeks and you know five pounds at a minimum, right? That getting from A to you know Q is is a, a leap that seems impossible to make, but it's not. And the way these babies make that leap is 20 grams a day, 20 grams a day, 20 grams a day, lose three grams, 20 grams a day, 20 grams a day. It's a little bit step by step, focusing on, in the words of Catherine McCauley. Um, being good today but better tomorrow. That's the story of of how NICU babies get to graduate. And I think it's a story in, in leadership that, that we can't um, jump from where we are to this vision of perfection. Uh, there are exceptionally rare circumstances, I think, where where that's the way change happens. My experience suggests that the vast majority of the time, um, people get to tremendous outcomes by focusing on getting a little bit better tomorrow and a little bit better the next day and a little bit better the next day. And all of a sudden, six months go by and you've gone from 400 grams to 2,500 grams. You're ready to go home. And that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Now, you also talk about your fallibility as a doctor. Yeah. You make mistakes. And that's something that I don't think we're very used to hearing from doctors. Why do you think it's important to talk about that? I think it's important as a, a healthcare system that we acknowledge we are fallible. I think for far too long in American healthcare, um, it was verboten to talk about errors and, and mistakes. And as a result, um, healthcare has lagged decades behind industries that have assumed human fallibility and built processes to support uh, the humans involved in them from making mistakes that reach people and cause harm. The classic examples, right, the nuclear power industry, uh, the airline industry, and so on and so forth. And so in healthcare, it's only when we begin admitting that we are humans and we will make a mistake. Even the best provider, one in 10,000 times, one in 100,000 times, right, we will make a mistake. When you talk about something like medication doses, a big hospital can go through hundreds of thousands of medication doses in a month. And so one out of hundreds of thousands would be 12 people harmed a year, right? So when we acknowledge that we're going to be human, and even the best human is going to make an error, that offers us an opportunity that other industries have taken advantage of for years that says, okay, assuming this person's going to make a mistake, what other slices of Swiss cheese, to use the the reason model of error, can we build to keep that mistake from falling through all of the holes, reaching a person and calling harm? Uh, and so my work in uh, in the quality world has really demonstrated to me that 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 is a much better way to think about 
uh, how we approach um, driving quality in, in healthcare. Uh, and, and frankly, it acknowledges that as providers, we have to be responsible for our own, um, our own excellence. We have to strive to be better and better and better every day. And we have to acknowledge that there's an asymptote there. We're never going to reach perfection. And so through tools like FMEA or root cause analysis, we can design better processes so that interchange any provider into to that person's shoe. Um, and if they make a mistake, we can keep it uh, as much as possible from reaching people and causing harm. And you're an advocate of the just culture model. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that? You bet. So just culture, I think, is is the right way to approach um, humans involved in uh, in any kind of circumstance where an error is made. And and the basics of just culture say that if the the human uh, isn't acting out of malice, so they're not intentionally causing an error to hurt somebody, uh, if they're not substance impaired. Um, you know, by, by alcohol or drugs or whatever. Um, and it's not a repetitive incident where uh, the person has made the error many times and been coached many times that the, the solution to that mistake is not blame the person, it's blame the process and support the human. Uh, and so when you follow that kind of algorithm and you look at the kinds of mistakes that we make in healthcare, uh, the interchangeability test is most of the time positive. In other words, if you put a different nurse in that bedroom on that day, is there a chance that he would have grabbed the same medican, medication uh, accidentally that this other nurse grabbed? Uh, and if so, then we are the problem. We, the administrative leadership, we have created a process that sets it up to make it too easy for someone to fail. We need to change the process to make it as easy as possible for that person to succeed, and then build in safeguards uh, that, that account for the fact that even with the best process, we're going to um, wind up with a mistake at some point uh, and build a layer that keeps that from reaching the patient and causing harm. So under a just culture method, very rarely uh, is the answer blame the person. Um, the vast majority of the time, it's blame and fix the process. Right. Now let's talk a little bit about technology. All right. So my sister recently had a baby. Mm. I was in the Congratulations. hospital. Thank you. Uh, I was in the hospital with her, and one thing that I noticed was that every provider who came in always they wheeled in that <laughs> computer, and they would start asking questions and be typing in the computer. And some of them would say, "I'm sorry that I'm typing. I'd like to be bedside with you, but I have mm. to do all this stuff before I can do any of that." Do you think that the technology has been taking away from the humanity of our providers at all? Or where do you see that balance between, you know, that we know that we need this technology, mm -hmm. um, but we also want to preserve some of that humanity of our caregivers. So what's the right balance? No question, Kathy. We, we, we not only need to preserve it, we need to scale it. We need to return humanity to the practice of medicine and nursing and therapy and so on. And I think, um, you know, Steve Jobs, when he was interviewed in Rolling Stone in the 90s, had this, this spectacular quote. He said, technology is nothing. Uh, it's people who we have faith in. Uh, and if we give them tools, then people can do wonderful things with them. And so I, I think the story of, of healthcare technology and specifically EMR technology that you're describing over the last 20 years has really been 
um, one of of sucking humanity out of of our practice, and there are a lot of reasons for that, and and I, I'm not one to cast blame in one direction or the other, but but at the end of the day, we designed we humans designed EMRs to work the way that they do, and what that also means is that we as humans have an opportunity to fix it, and so the the process you described, you know, doesn't doesn't surprise me in part because that's exactly the way it used to work on paper. That I'd walk into the room with my list, you know, when I was a med student at 4:30 in the morning, and I'd be taking notes, and mm-hmm. all we've done is replaced a paper process with an electronic process, and most of the time we haven't taken advantage of the kinds of changes technology could. Um, could support in the way that we we engage with patients. And so my uh, fervent hope in an AI-enabled world is that that we'll be able to leverage opportunities to use technology to drive a return of humanity to our practice. And there are many, many ways that could happen. Uh, But because AI functions the same way uh, that I think as a clinician, in other words, deep learning works by being exposed to lots and lots and lots of labeled data. Uh, and then seeing patterns emerge, right? Uh, there are applications across the healthcare world to tasks that we ask humans to provide today that can become automated and thereby return time mm-hmm. to your human provider's days to engage with what they should be doing, which is human-to-human time with their people. So what do you think are some of the most exciting applications of AI? Yeah, there, there are a number. Um, to me... The, the biggest opportunities that I see within AI uh, in healthcare have to do with moving upstream of, of an event um, and, and automating processes that don't need to be done by humans to scale more human time. Mm-hmm. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, be it in the acute or in the chronic world, AI is being used today to look at patterns. Um, pattern recognition right, is, is AI manifest. And looking in patterns of, of someone's you know, clinical history, their claims history, their prescription history, uh, their lab history, we can find patterns that suggest this bad thing is going to happen. We need to do something now. Similarly, in the inpatient world, um, combining all of this data that you have to hunt and peck in records for today uh, on vitals, on labs, on meds, you, know, you name it, uh, can s- serve predictions to people that say, hey, you need to pay attention to Dirienzo because we don't know what's going to happen, but, but his pattern suggests six hours from now there's going to be badness. Right? This is what we've done clinically as physicians for centuries. We've combined patterns of signs and symptoms uh, and, and looked at different trajectories that we've seen over hundreds of patients and said, okay, I think this is what's going to happen next, so here's what we do to intervene. Now we have the opportunity to serve into AI-enabled um, uh, interventions the same capacity, but scaled thousands upon millions of times. That is super exciting to me. Now, at the same time, uh, if you look at what happened in the banking world uh, when ATMs were introduced, I don't know, have you seen the, the graph? Uh, Eric Schmidt used to put it up all the time at Google, but it, it's a graph of the number of ATMs in the country from 1960 to 2010. So just at kind of the precipice of the internet banking re- mm-hmm. revolution, so 50 years. Uh, and of course, that number was like vertically up and to the right. right. right? Um, what do you think happened to the number of tellers in the US? Went down. You would think it actually went up. Interesting. Not only did it go up, um, but think about what they were asked to do. So the, the reason it went up, 
uh, when you automate the most uh, basic rote tasks of banking, um, you have fewer tellers per branch. But the tellers who are working there are doing more complex things and spending more time engaging with humans. So what happens? The marginal cost of opening a branch plummeted. So banks opened way more branches. And you can look it up online right now. It's almost uh, linearly in parallel to the, the, the scale increase in ATMs, again, right up until 2010. And then there was another revolution that happened. Mm -hmm. The same thing can happen in healthcare. There are processes today that we ask people who've gone to 30 years of education and training to do that we don't need humans to be doing. We can use AI to automate those things and allow doctors and nurses and therapists um, and NAs to practice at the tops of their license. That is exciting because that directly scales humanity and healthcare. Mm -hmm. Now, is there any c concern in that pattern recognition of relying too much on the machine? Without question. Just in, in the recent past, there have been a number of articles questioning potential bias in AI models and how we're doing the wrong thing. I think that, that at least for the foreseeable future, uh, it'll be rare, or it should be rare, to fully delegate decision makings in healthcare to AI. Where I think AI is much better positioned to serve is as augmented intelligence, in which case, if I can serve a pattern to you as a provider that says, hey, there's something you need to pay attention to, um, that is a, a information point that you didn't have yesterday. It still requires you to interpret and take action on it. Right. And so the decision lies with you. So I think to some degree, uh, that that level of concern is mitigated by um, by stopping short of thoroughly automating an action. That said, there are absolutely some actions that I think could become totally automated and should become totally automated clinically and administratively. And when we, we cross that threshold, we have to be exceptionally mindful uh, that we're not setting ourselves up for a, a pre-biased outcome. Now, there's been a lot of talk about provider burnout, mm. that a lot of providers are spending, you know, they'll say they spend hours at the end of their day, typing in things in the EMR, they feel depressed, there are high rates of suicide. Mm -hmm. Do you think that technology can actually help with provider burnout at all? I know that in many cases the technology has been blamed for mm -hmm. it, but are there ways that it can help mitigate some of that? I do, and, and I think we're touching on, on exactly why. I, I don't think the technology is inherently evil. Uh, and I don't think that anyone uh, developed any of the the you know the kinds of, of solutions we we complain about today with, with evil intent. What I do think that we've done is we've taken a generation of physicians and worked them through a paper to electronic transformation that, without question, is asking more of their time. Mm -hmm. And I remember the notes that I used to write in the NICU that required five circles and two sentences. Uh, and so, so from the beginning, right, there was always going to be an increased ask on providers for the downstream benefit of capturing data in a way that enables us to find things we couldn't find before. Uh, and so I, as much as I think technology has contributed to provider burnout, which without question it has, I also think that we can use the same technology to dial back our asks of providers that we just have to approach it with intentionality. I, I think that in a universe where uh, core principle one is 
how are we impacting humans? Uh, we develop different kinds of technology. We develop uh, different approaches to deploying that technology. We bring the end users into the process much, much earlier on, and we solve for human factors at the front end instead of the back end. I completely made this mistake myself once at Mission. Uh, it was a partnership with the spectacular data science team, and I'd asked them, can you build a machine learning readmissions model that can beat LACE? Uh, and they, they beyond my wildest dreams, surpassed that. So we had this righteous model. Um, it handily beat LACE, which is sort of the, the very uh, basic standard, uh, gold standard model. And so I, I, I said, the care managers are going to love this. And so it was like February of that particular year, we brought it to the care managers uh, and made one serious mistake, and that was we didn't bring the care managers in when we started the development process. And so we didn't realize uh, how much it was going to change their workflows, um, how much it was going to change their software, how it was going to change their brainware, right? And so it took a full nine months of working with that team, both on the technology side to ensure that we had the uptime that they needed in order to rely on this tool in their day-to-day -day work, and to understand how their current process needed to change, as well as expose them to this whole new world of opportunity they didn't even know existed, which also meant a new kind of work and potentially even new people doing it. And so it took nine months, Kathy, to work through this process, and I had tremendous partnership from the vice president of care management uh, mission at the time, the data science team, all the informatics teams, you name it. Uh, they they were all in and stayed all in, even though uh, it's on me. I screwed up and didn't get them involved at the time they should have been. Uh, and so what happened? Uh, by the time we got all the processes redesigned, um, and we figured out how to double screen in a way that wasn't going to dramatically impact. Uh, the days of the care managers and facilitated a process around it. We had three of the best readmissions months on record at Mission Hospital. It was tremendous. That's the kind of power in leveraging technology uh, and the, the improvements in process that can happen when you focus on the people involved. Mm -hmm. And you talked about that importance of bringing the clinicians in and understanding how it impacts their workflows. You bet. I mean, is there is there a concern that we are exposing our providers though to too much technology or too much new change because they already have all this other stuff they need to learn. They need to know the latest medical advances. Mm. Um, is, this, is this almost overwhelming to them? Oh, it's absolutely overwhelming if it's considered in layers, right? The, the way that I've, I've found most successful to walk through this kind of change with teams of providers, inpatient, ambulatory, you know, primary care, stuff, you name it. it. You can't just layer new thing upon new thing upon new thing. Uh, you have to start taking things away. And so, for example, when um, a brilliant physician, uh, Dr. Shannon Dowler, came on at Mission as uh, my ambulatory chief quality officer, uh, she looked at the way we were trying to drive clinical transformation in the ambulatory and appropriately said, this is insane. You guys are asking us to do 14 new things. Instead, why don't we take this one thing we were doing, drive all of the, 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 um, the, the care process model work here, and now we can take away all this other stuff. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, um, once we, we started doing that, the adherence weight went through the roof, and she got 30 new care process models 
through the the, um, the process in two years with incredible support, of course, from PI and, and informatics and analytics and education and nursing and pharmacy, you name it. But, um, but just that simple flip from we're adding this new page or we're giving you this new thing to look at to instead of going to 14 different places, this is now the one place that you can go. Uh, that's the way we need to think about change management. And when we, we flipped our thinking to that approach, uh, now, as a provider, you're saving me time. And that's time that is either returned to see more patients or means I get home to see my kid's soccer game or means I get to have dinner with my family, you know, three times, or whatever it is. Uh, that is really meaningful to people. Seems like it comes back to that whole people process technology. It's not just the technology part, but you need to work on the people and the process as well. Without a doubt. I I think that uh, when the CIO at Mission and I uh, started working closely together, we realized that um, prior to that partnership, uh, IT was at risk of building really shiny, pretty things that nobody used. And we on the clinical side were at risk of asking for solutions that we really didn't need and or knew how they worked. And so when we brought this partnership together, his name is John Brown, he's a terrific guy, um, we, we realized that I needed to stop asking for things and start saying, here's where I need to go. And they needed to devote their dev resources towards, this is what our uh, clinical operational you know, quality teams need to drive change. And when we reached that partnership, uh, the people, the process, the technology all aligns. And over the course of two and a half years, uh, in total, we did something like 80 of those care process models. I think it was 85 over three years and 70 over two years. Uh, and completely transformed the way that, that the, the health system was caring for people. We did the math once, and even just on the ambulatory side, we could have filled Wembley Stadium twice over with the number of people who had had a, a new breast cancer screening or a new colorectal cancer screening or whose diabetes uh, was in control. Um, Ed Sheeran, of course, filled Wembley Stadium four times over, but we thought that twice <laughs> over was, was you know, pretty Not solid. Bad. That's right. Uh, that, that's what can happen when you align the people, the process technology with the right core purpose. Mm-hmm. Now looking ahead, what do you think maybe the next five years holds for healthcare? Oh, man. <laughs> I, I think that regardless of where our political winds blow, um, without question, uh, there has to be transformation in healthcare cost and outcomes. No question. Uh, and independent of a Republican or Democrat, um, states and the federal government need to push off risk. Um, because they need to pay for things like education and roads and infrastructure, and and it's difficult to budget for that when the healthcare line item is is just exploding, right? And so I think that the push to um, to risk onto to providers' uh, backs is only going to continue to increase. At the same time, employers are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, you've got the senior benefits managers at big employers looking to their left and seeing a CFO who says. Our health plan uh, outcomes now dominate our bottom line performance more than our operations do, uh, and on the other side, you know they've got this massive team of employees who they know they need to care for better, and whose health um, they generally both care about and is core to their business operating. Uh, healthcare is too expensive for them. Um, you've got plans who 
uh, are are seeing their books of business radically change, and providers who spend billions upon billions of dollars um, of infrastructure spend for a sick care fee-for-service system now being asked to help manage a well-care health-focused system. And so to me, it, there's never been a more exciting time to be in healthcare because all of these stars are aligning around uh, payment models that are now making a sustainable approach to driving population health a reality that realistically has never existed outside of small pockets in this country before. That means that um, folks who are able to innovate uh, and who are serving that core purpose in their communities for people now have the chance to do things that historically would not have been fiscally sustainable as an organization to do. That to me is super exciting and I think over the next five years we'll see some incredible progress across the country, probably in pockets, probably in demonstration areas, and then scaling nationwide of how that can all play out. I love your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Chris. This was a great conversation. I've really enjoyed being here, Kathy, and I hope the audience enjoys it. Thank you. If you're interested in following Chris, you can find him on Twitter at Chris DiRienzo, MD, or via his website, www.drdirienzo.com. You can also find his book, Tiny Medicine, on Amazon. As for us at the Smarter Healthcare Podcast, I am on Twitter at KSusich, that's K-S-U-C-I-C-H, and the show is on Twitter at SmartHCPodcast, as well as online at SmartHCPodcast.com. In addition to show notes and streams of our episodes, we will include resources on there from our guests. For example, you can find a link to Chris's book on there right now. I hope you'll continue to tune into the Smarter Healthcare Podcast. Our episodes will be released every other week. Thank you all so much for joining us today.